Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on November 19th, 2021. Brian B.K. Kohler has been the director of the Park Maintenance Institute since early 2020. B.K. holds degrees in business administration, parks and recreation administration, and experiential education. He is an experienced facilitator and event professional with an extensive background in team building, ropes courses, climbing tower construction, and outdoor adventure leadership. Before joining the Parks Maintenance Institute, BK was based in Hong Kong through 2015 as an experiential educator, producer, and entrepreneur. Upon his stateside return, BK stepped into operations and facilities management of the Student Union and Recreation Center at Central Washington University. BK is a native Pennsylvanian, but self-proclaimed global citizen. Welcome to the Planetrillion Trees podcast, Brian. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Eva. Hal and I have so many questions for you because you are a director of Park Maintenance Institute, which sounds very new and exciting. And it sounds like there's a lot going on behind the scenes when we talk about uh, an institute for parks and maintenance. Uh, so you can give us a little bit of background about that and how you actually got into the Park Maintenance Institute? Sure. So the Park Maintenance Institute, basically we are building a community of professionals focused on advancing the capacity of parks and recreation organizations, municipal leadership, public works departments, and other public land stewards. Where we came from was Uh, some research that was done by the Pennsylvania Recreation and Park Society, along with the Pennsylvania Parks and Forest Foundation. And they did some research looking at the state park and state forest system specifically, looking at maintenance backlogs. And through their research, they figured at that point in time, there was over $1.2 billion of deferred maintenance, which... Of course, across an entire system, that includes your bridges and roads, but it's also your forests and your natural resources within there. Right about now, they're saying it's about $1.6 billion. So it, it's still going up. Luckily, some of the money is coming back from the different legislations and things. But when they went to then look at, at the community level, how is this affecting our smaller municipalities, they found that folks weren't necessarily keeping track of that kind of data because they they just didn't have the capacity to do it. The the backbone, the understanding of just breaking out those kind of things. And so 
that's where the idea of the Institute came to be is let's create a one-stop shop for helping folks build their maintenance capacities and how we can look at using our community infrastructure differently. Just for clarification, we're talking about the state of Pennsylvania. Is that mainly what you service or? The original plan was Pennsylvania specific, but I came into starting the position January, 2020. If you happen to remember what happened last March, things changed, uh, world stopped. And so our concept of being able to get to the ground, go to conferences, do things at a regional level, I still needed to do something. So I went virtual. And what ended up happening is I found that this is a need across the country. The mission of your organization also working with urban parks as well. So Pittsburgh, Williamsport, Allentown, Philly. The short answer is yes, the, the intent is to support the municipalities across the state of Pennsylvania and beyond our boundaries. Um, and not just parks. That's what I've found is there are common interests across public works, across private landowners, as well as public land managers. And there's different things we can pull from. And the more I dug into the breadth of the word maintenance, the more I found there's, there's common interests to pull from in many different angles. Your organization is actually, it has that title of Park Maintenance Institute, but it's actually morphing into the public realm and creating something that you might not have been expecting. Absolutely. And, and I guess at the end goal, that was the intent, was to be something organic that's going to grow. And it's building a community. It's a matter of taking the mindset of grounds crews, facility crews, even your janitors at your school districts and the way and thinking more professionally and creating a new identity uh, or brand, if you will, and saying, hey, we're here for a purpose. We are essential because when you look at it, the world stopped, but the grass didn't stop growing. The trees didn't stop sending out water sprouts. And so those things needed maintained even though people weren't out on the roads. And so these people became frontline workers. And at that point, they're not used to being in that kind of spotlight. So they need support to be in that spotlight. Do you think COVID actually helped to uh, let us all see the blemishes that are actually on the face of our society? You know, things that we ignore, things that we don't want to be accountable for or take accountability. I think maintenance has always been something I would look and say, you know, how come that building isn't maintained? Or how come they're not cleaning up that area? Or, you know, back in the 70s, you know, we wound up with having invasives today because they had that hands-off attitude then where let's, you know, let's not do anything. Let's just leave everything be. And that's not how life is. I would say one thought would be, we could say that it brought out some of the negatives or highlighted the negatives, but those were always there anyways. I think a way to really turn this around and be more future thinking is it brought out a lot of opportunities for change. And it's also the justification is now there because people see the needs. It, uh, it's no longer anecdotal. 
the technologies and the different ways that people are doing things are becoming much, much more data oriented. Now we can actually justify more efforts or it's not even more. It's just the sense of not having to deal with less every single year, because usually the first thing that gets cut out is a storage closet when you're in a design or construction project. The first thing that gets cut out when it's uh, the staff that needs to go is the custodian or some of the people that are low on the totem pole. Meanwhile, those tasks and those essential duties still have to go. Just to step back for one second, I'm fascinated by everything you've said. What is your background? I'm looking at you, I've just met you, and I'm thinking, this guy is bringing a wide skill set that's more than just trees. Tell us about how you found this job and how did you come to trees and everything that Being you're doing? Being born and raised in a semi-rural Pennsylvania area. You know, I grew up outside, well, in the Lehigh Valley, a little town called Tatami, right on a Bushkill Creek, which feeds in, and I say creek, not creek, um, feeding into the Delaware, you know, so I grew up in an area that was at that point rural, but right on the edge of urban, suburban kind of sprawl. Now, if you would go there, it's nothing but parking lots and Amazon warehouses and things. So that's because we were, we were on a highway corridor, boom, done. But growing up, I, I, I appreciated all of that. And we would go out camping, hunting, fishing, all of that with family and friends, that was entertainment. You know, that was recreation. Uh, and then I got into my high school, college years, and I got into camping, outdoor leadership. And so I worked at uh, Bear Creek Camp up in the Poconos, and learning how to live in the wilderness and environmental education pieces. It all started kind of just molding together. And then I got into the the actual career side of things. I went through, I got my outdoor rec degree, went on, got a master's degree in experiential education, and I started getting into the ropes course industry. So trees became essential bread and butter. I was building things in trees and I had to know good trees. I had, so you start learning the, the horticultural and arboriculture side of things because you had to, as opposed to, but it was always an interest in those things or what you grew up with. So it wasn't hard. It just became more professional. And then it ends up going from being just something recreational to something you're living off of. Yeah. So as I suspected, you wore a lot of different hats. You came to it with a strong family background and well positioned to where you are today. And just because everyone's going to be wondering who funds the, uh, the Park Maintenance Institute originally uh, were started on seed funding from the Pennsylvania Recreation and Park Society, as well as the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. So some grant funding there. Uh, and we had a very generous donation from the Mellon Foundation to help really get us going. Moving forward, the objective for the Institute is to go towards self-support so that over the next few years, based on an annual subscription to the Institute, we have a website that we've built so people subscribe to gain access to that database, uh, as well as holding events, training events, workshops, uh, so registration fees that go along with that. 
hopefully corporate advertising opportunity, sponsorship, that kind of, and then fundraising. As I hear about what you're doing, uh, you know, I live in Philadelphia and it sounds like you and Eva were talking earlier that she's just outside the city. So we have Philadelphia Parks and Rec recently consolidated two departments into one as a cost-saving measure. And we've had some of their people on. What does that look like to you when you look at the bigger cities? And sorry to, you know, go right after my agenda here, but what does it look like when you visit or take in and, and assess the big cities, kind of the culture of what a tree department is going to be up against in terms of skill set and productivity and safety and everything like that. That's a big undertaking for an outside. There's a couple of ways to really look at that question. And I mean, if if we're looking at it on the workforce development side of things and your your staff, if you're taking those kind of things on, making sure that your staff is taking those kind of things on as opposed to administration telling them that they need to do this now. Because one of the biggest concerns, and you brought up safety, is uneducated staff or unskilled staff, you know, take education aside, it's a skill set, and realizing a job analysis. And so it's before you really take on tasks and take on specifics like responsibilities for trees, you know, example. Does that really belong in, you know, public works? hands now all of a sudden, as opposed to being in parks, because maybe parks has skilled arborists on staff. Or if all of a sudden you took them away, we need to have skilled arborists in public works now. There may not be, you know, so it's making sure that if you're shifting duties, roles, and essential responsibilities, you have to first look at what are the essential tasks, duties, and needs to achieve the objectives. Otherwise, you're going to have a juxtaposed move and then you're always going to have bad press. I always thought about mm -hmm. it growing up, hopping cricks, you know, you look before you jump on the rock because if you jump on the slippery rocks, you're getting wet. And depending on where you're at, it could be a miserable day or it could be an inconvenience, you know, or life or death. So... <laughs> Well, you, you were sure. talking about trees and having the staff to to take care of them. Let's talk a little bit about the park system and the infrastructure of the park. What kind of infrastructure does a park or should a park have? And how do trees fit in there? And there's also another topic that you are well-versed in, and that's MS4, which our listeners might not know about. And because we are a global podcast, we'd like to really break things down so that everybody knows what things are. Sure. I'll start with MS4, because that's kind of slang, if you will. That is Municipal Separate Storm Sewer System. So that's the four S's, Separate Storm Sewer System. So that basically... If, if you really want to boil it down to simplest terms, your groundwater that runs off your roof is not allowed to go into the same system as your toilet. Simplest way to break that down. Um, and so if you look at that on the development side of things, like there may be development all around your communities, no matter where you are right now, every time they go and put a new circle 
in a cornfield or cut down a bunch of trees somewhere, and now all of a sudden you're going to put a bunch of impervious area. That means blacktop, that means roof space, that means concrete, whatever it be. Every square foot that you're putting down that water can't penetrate is now something that you have to account for. A lot of the times we're seeing things like they just dig a big ditch and you see these big bowls next to a house development. You're always like, why is that there? And it's nothing but grass and, you know, it gets a little weedy or something like that. And it usually has a little culvert at the bottom and stuff. But all that's there for is to capture water that runs off all the roofs and all the impervious area uphill and hold it there long enough so that it doesn't go flushing into the river. And so that's why it's important. We need these things because it keeps all the water from flushing into the river. And the more and more housing that we create, more and more roads we create, the water doesn't become any less and less. It just has less and less area to go into the ground as opposed to flush into the river. So you can't stop water. It's impossible. It's physically impossible to stop water, but we can slow it down. And that's where trees come in. That's where the trees come in because the roots of a tree system soak that up, but also slow it down and spread the area out, make soil textures change. And so it's not this compact area of grass that doesn't slow down the water as much. And so the more that we have deep root systems like trees and woody shrubs and native grasses and things like that that go much and much more deep than two-inch tall grass, we're slowing that water down more and more and more. And so that's why when we have these giant retention areas, instead of just making it grass, one, somebody has to mow or maintain that area, want it to be pretty. And then do you want dandelions in there? Oh, now I have to spray chemicals in there. And so it's taking all these different things into account. But if you plant that area with trees and shrubs and all of a sudden butterflies start showing up and different kind of life and things, and it's the same response, same physics and everything, but it has so many more benefits. And it's just a simple change. Plus, we don't have mowing constantly. And we're not meant to be taking work away from people. We're just giving them opportunities to work on the other stuff that's backlogged. It's interesting, uh, your overview just now, but for our regular listeners to the podcast, we've had other guests that are talking on the other side of the ledger. You know, the people from the Middle East, from Colorado, from California, and everything that you just said is completely inverted as they try to figure out how to get more water to their plantings. And I guess when you talk Pennsylvania, we are green and abundant, and we have that plenty of water more so that we have to engineer ways to properly handle it. Well, in some of those areas that you bring up, especially when I look at park areas in Arizona and down in the San Diego area where water is at a, a premium, we're still seeing very similar answers. We're still seeing bioswales. We're still seeing because the native plants in those areas are more drought tolerant. And so therefore they don't need the irrigation and the amount of water usage that grass needs. I mean, the amount of water that it takes grass to grow in the desert, why are people even doing that? It blows my mind. Now, People working in the parks and recreation industry that have backgrounds in conservation and things, I 
think they would appreciate, you know, some of that. All, they may be preaching to the choir, but at the same time, it's starting to justify. It's like, well, why is my water cost so much? Well, stop using so much. Something that you said about the MS4, about being impervious surfaces, and, you know, we need to capture the water before it goes into the uh, streams and then down into the rivers. The townships are actually charged for the runoff that they dump into the river if they're not holding it back. So I'm not sure if everybody knows that, but municipalities actually have to pay a fine for dumping too much water into a river. And this is a way around having to pay those fines. And why should they pay a fine that they could they could actually use the money for something else, you know? But it's also a way to force people to actually have these detention basins to hold water back so that the people downstream aren't flooded out. And that brings up a very good point. There are parts of Pennsylvania, and I'm sure there's other areas, and especially in probably out west, where urban development zones are essential. And so because there's so many wetland areas in certain parts that you can't build in a wetland. And so what's happening is these counties still want development, but they need to figure out, well, how can we make that more dense? And if you're taking 30% of your development space and have to do something like dig a hole and let water sit in it, that's not as beneficial. So where about if we have wetland redevelopment projects? Because these areas we were building on once upon a time, maybe it's just a bogged out field or it's a, an old farm area that never was really productive, but you know, it was always a farm. Why don't we turn that back into a wetland? Let's replant that. Let's put in riparian buffers and let's push back the development area so that we're one, fighting the sediment, we're, we're doing the good stuff and letting the water get cleaner. It's turning back and doing what it's doing naturally. But we can also at the same time go to land study university over here, you know, Penn State Extension, for example, here in Pennsylvania, but any land grant university across the country in the United States would have these kind of extension programs where they can come in and help you do some studies and over five, six, 10 years show, hey, we've changed the water quality. We've done this now your urban development area to the adjacent outside the wetland can fill in that hole and build because it's already taken care of by the thing that's next to it. And that's where the businesses need to start seeing, well, I'm up river of this area. Let's put in a wetland between me and that water source. So that way I'm not going to get fined down the road, but the fines one need to be big enough for them to want to put that kind of investment into it. So there's a lot of cascading things that happen otherwise, but there is benefit and there's lots of justifications. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember when I interviewed the woman who broke the story on the Fisteria outbreak in the Chesapeake Bay, you know, how they figured out that all this water and runoff was coming from chicken farmers in Pennsylvania, <laughs> Pennsylvania and Maryland. And they had to do something about it. And, you know, being conscientious and being able to filter water using natural filters like trees and shrubs is far better than trying to do something else that's not as natural. That's where you come in, I guess, where, when you're working with the municipalities. What kind of information do you give them and, and how do you approach them? And what kind of programs do you have that can actually help the municipalities 
with these kind of issues? I guess one of the biggest benefits that folks can get by working with the Institute is that I'm a concierge of research, you know, so I am meant to find out this information and collect it, build a database. And so I have a lot of resources that I've already searched through. And so I guess I'm a benefit. I am a Google on specific topics for folks. So they don't have to spend the time to go through the cat videos and all the other rubbish that there may be out there. You know, <laughs> I'm sifting like through it. <laughs> That's probably the biggest benefit. <laughs> a research concierge. I love that. That is so wonderful. I love that terminology. And that's what people have been doing. You know, some that's the more that we've been getting out there and the more that people have been finding out about what I'm trying to do with the Institute and what the original intent was through PRPS, the more that folks are starting to say, Hey, why haven't people been doing this more? Because it's, it's looking at projects, programs, things that are existing, the master plans, all these buzz terms, but it's looking at it with a logistical eye and looking at it from the bottom up. And so I've been doing a lot of outreach, just using forums and different kinds of tools like that, just finding people that are doing things. And so I'm like, hey, who's doing projects in LED lighting changeouts to save money? What, you know, what's the feedback on, hey, who deals with no salt in your winter management? And so that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm talking with people and just trying to be the connector of dots and asking people to share what they have. And so it's crowdsourcing experience, crowdsourcing best practices that are industry applicable. And it's not just looking at it, I'm only asking park people. No, I'm asking manufacturing. I'm asking people that work in public works and people that work in government. It's breaking those silos down because I don't have allegiance to anyone specifically, you know, other than the industry. And so that's the way I'm taking this. And so when you look at maintenance, how do trees apply? You know, well, essentially trees are an asset if you're looking at your park system systematically. And if we're looking forward thinking, technology is helping do that more and more. Hal brought up a very good point on the difference kind of between rural and urban interests and parks in a sense. But I would say the interests are very similar. It's just the approach in managing the assets are completely different. And the urban programs are much more technologically advanced, probably because they have bigger budgets, but they also have been looking at things more on a, a capital replacement and asset management mindset as opposed to a work order or service mindset. I guess everybody has some customer service, but like the rural response is one municipal person or maybe a small public works department, maybe one director in charge of everything that does the annual 4th of July fireworks all the way down to making sure the streets are done. But then you have Philadelphia, as you brought up as an example, that has a sustainable department, has a money raising department, has a you know, all these other departments broken up. They are different animals and they have different ways of doing things. But at the end of the day, they're all managing community assets. So you're trying to make things more efficient for people. And helping people figure out, you know, what is efficient. 
Because if you're not tracking your data and you're not setting benchmarks and you're not comparing it to something, then you may as well just be making it up as you go along constantly and you're just being reactive. I'm sure there's a lot of places within the state of Pennsylvania that are reactive rather than proactive. I think that comes from the idea of people wanting everything now rather than let's look down the road and let's see what's coming and let's plan for it and let's let's be proactive. And I and I think that that's something that we really need to shift. We have to shift gears and be proactive and and perhaps maybe this big bill that just is going through with the money that is going to be used for uh, the environment, we become more mindful and thoughtful and proactive of how we use that money down the line. And of course, your organization would be an ideal organization to help people do that. I would add it's even it's even bigger than just looking at how I fit into the current bill and to the current money that's coming. but. How do I not fit in, in a sense? It's just, I fit in everywhere. For example, if we look at recreation systems, but if we look at them as an infrastructure mindset, you know, it's answering that stormwater control where there is a certain earmet, there's a certain set of money for that. But then there's also the health and wellness bucket of money sitting there. Well, recreation has to do with that too. And then it has the environmental sustainability and resilience piece in there. Oh, recreation has to do with that too. And so it's where else we fit in and just telling your story better. And that's what maintenance folks need to be get better at. I mean, a lot of the times when you have that old grumpy kind of person sitting on a mower mentality or the guy in the broom closet. I mean, that that's a persona. You have to get past that persona and make it more the, the fun individual that's taking care of our facilities. You know, the person that's keeping things safe, the people that are keeping the lights on. So just changing that message, you know, and same thing with trees. And when we're planting, it's more than planting the trees it's you brought up the point of future thinking it's how do we maintain those now that they go in and the investment that they bring to us as they get older i mean there's a point at which they start to decline and then they cost us something but how much do they give us monetarily over time as they mature that's something that we need to think about too and you know you were talking about the man in the broom closet and some of the smartest people i've met were in broom closets. And when I say that, um, you know, they're the people who are the jack of all trades. They can do pretty much everything and they have ideas, but they're not, they're not heard. And they decide not to, to say it anymore. And those are the people who we need to hear from because they see things that most other people don't see. We need to hear from them even as their numbers are shrinking. Right. I mean, staffing Absolutely. is a huge issue. And uh, I like what you said earlier, Brian, about raising the bar in terms of professionalism, because that, that goes a long way when there's a credential that you stand behind and when there's CEUs that you have to be chasing down and staying current. Staffing issues are not a quick fix. Everywhere we go, we see in all sectors the help wanted sign. And at the same time, well, I like to think that there's a certain amount of the upcoming workforce that is going to appreciate 
what some of the jobs are in maintenance and the stigma falls away a little bit so that all of a sudden knowing how to change the blades on the riding mower or keeping the batteries charged on the battery powered uh, blowers, whatever, you know, polishing the doorknobs on the You'd room You'd be surprised classes. how many buildings lose their service elevators and service hallways. It's usually the first thing to go because they need to be extra wide and extra big. And what ends up happening is it's always a customer first mindset because how are we going to get the money in? How are we going to get money in? But sometimes the supporting part is just as important as getting the money in because you can't feed the money unless we get the tools in. And going back to the point of planting and things, I mean, like landscapes are not designed necessarily on an architectural page very well. They look great in pictures, but I've seen the application maybe not be the most thought out. And so that's where some of these new tools like GIS, and if we're really tracking where our assets currently are, then we can make better decisions on where things need to be afterwards. As Hal brought, sometimes it is the people at the bottom that know that, but they never get asked. You know what's so funny, we, that term, at the bottom of the totem pole? The bottom is what holds up the totem pole, for goodness sakes. And that's what people keep missing. <laughs> totem poles, it's just because they're maybe straight up and down. But when you look at foundational, every single model, hierarchy of needs, the IPM pyramid, they're pyramids. The base is the biggest part, and that's supposed to be the base. The top is just the showiness. Yeah, aren't totem poles kind of they a sacred are. structure? They are, they are a sacred we... structure. And they need to be built on sound ground with a sound foundation. If that is gone, everything else tumbles. Getting back to the trees and the park infrastructure, do you have classes that show valuation of trees? Do you use iTree? Do you use those kind of things to show municipalities the inherent value of a tree over time the institute does not have specific information like our own branded materials right now we are a gatherer and you know i put the pieces together and so a lot of uh the resources that i would pull on would be getting folks like from penn state extension and gathering those folks and bringing them to the workshop areas that has not been a specific outcry currently. Now, you know, as far as the planting, I know pruning um, and looking at tree health and kind of those more hands-on workshop kind of aspects of things, those are out there and they're needed very much so. I would say they're needed to the point that there's not enough people putting them on. But it's also a challenge, especially when you're looking at a park industry a lot of the time training wants to happen in the winter when that's not necessarily the best time to get out there because everybody's got to push snow. And then as soon as things start to grow, okay, we got to mow. And then all of a sudden the leaves start falling off and now we got to clean all the leaves up. So it's kind of one of those. It's, and that's what the Institute's meant to do is, okay, what projects are lined up at your facilities? Where is your knowledge gaps? Okay, I'll find somebody to come and help you guys do this for an afternoon. That's that's a lot. Uh, an example, just this past Tuesday, we put a, a soccer field to bed 
and that was the the workshop for the day. So we had folks out. We got some equipment brought in from E.H. Uh, e. Griffith out there near Pittsburgh, and they're the they're the Toro distributor in that area. And so that they brought out some big equipment, and we aerated the soccer field, and then uh, they had a a big uh, blower. And so then you went and you blew all the leaves off and then they went and we had a top dresser, which is giant, basically like a, a small version of an agricultural spreader. And then just ran that down and ran sand and top dressed the entire field. And then boom, now this, the field's ready to go to bed for winter. So no seating at Overseeding in, the, in this time, it, you'd almost waste it in a sense, you know, so. We'll do that in the springtime. Right. Yeah, if they would do, because we didn't pull core or anything like that. It was just the time poking in and everything. Oh, you oh, were the right. time okay. pushing. Okay, you were Right, coring. if they would have cored, it probably, it would have been a little bit messier. You know, you have to get all that off of there first before you, so we would have run out of time. Because we also have to think that our audience, a lot of the audience is the, the boots on the ground. And so it needs to fit within that. Uh, work day for them. So we need to basically give them an hour to get to the wherever we're going to be. And we got to finish by two so they can clock out at three kind of thing because you have to be within that union work day. Can you take your programs around the state? Absolutely. That is, we are guns for hire, if you will. You have the need. I try to put the pieces together and it, we come to you. But it's also an opportunity to open it up and see who else can come within a So that's why we try to think of it regionally. So we kind of go the eastern part of the state, the central part of the state, and the, the western part of the state, because you won't find, they won't travel, they won't have the budget for overnight kind of things. So instead of thinking of an annual conference, it's more about regional workshops. Now, can you also uh, video those so that they're available for your team? I have been doing webinars along with this, but the the live things, I think that's one of the benefits of going to live sessions is being there because it's meant to be uh, a hands-on experience as well as an educational experience. So we'll get we'll get an educator to come in and maybe talk about uh, on this last one, we had uh, Glenn Bupp come from Allegheny County and he did a, a weed identification walk. So we went around and looked at some of the common invasives that were right there around the, the shop area. Uh, we did a little presentation and got some pesticide points because we handed it into PA plants. So that state, that's our state ag program that has the recertification CEU credits that go along for a workshop. And so you put all those pieces together uh, somebody's coming in, they're getting some hands-on experience, they're getting some networking experience, they're getting some education credits and a lunch. It ends up being something that people have a chance to learn, but it also becomes something fun and something to look forward to. And they also meet other people who I think is one of the, the most important things is to network, to, to find out if people have similar problems. That's right. Or if, it, if, it, if a community wants to go for a grant maybe there's two or three communities that abut each other and they never talk and they go to one of these things and now all of a sudden they're going to go for a three township grant for riparian buffers for example right and then and if, if you look even a bigger picture pulling multiple stakeholders together is we can have a buffer zone that also has 
a trail next to it, and maybe even it's a rail trail that happens to go multi-municipality areas. And so all of a sudden, instead of thinking, I don't have a trail, we have a regional trail. And so now it becomes something that can be a tourism point. It can be something that has cultural and natural value between, depending on what the story is and where the starting point and the ending point is, is where are these opportunities to touch? And where are these opportunities to actually pull together as opposed to stay in our own little microcosm and only focus on our interests? And that's kind of what the Institute's trying to do is how can we create common goals and common purposes and best practices as opposed to saying, well, I do it this way. This is the way I do it. You know, it's a matter of, well, this is how they do it. This is how they do it. And this is how they do it. How do we do it? Or how do we decide to do it? The other thing I was thinking about too, is that when you go out and you go to these events, you actually can see that, oh, I really don't have the problem I thought I had. Or, wow, do they have a problem? Maybe we could send some of our workers there. Maybe they can help us with another project. It's a big state. It's a mountainous state. We have all these natural barriers. And uh, whether it's in the Poconos or the Alleghenies or the crisscrossing of the interstates and stuff like that, there's a lot of upside for people to find out what the next town over is doing and even 300 miles west what they're up to. And you mentioned tourism. That always gets my attention because I feel like Pennsylvania is an untapped resource slash market for tourism. You know, we've got so much beauty here, you know, and here's my skewed perception just living here in Philly. People go to the shore, you know, or people go 65 miles north to the Poconos, and that's what they know. They don't know about what lies on the other side of the Susquehanna or on the shores of Lake Erie in Erie, PA. And it seems like the Institute holds the key to, to you know, expanding on some of that. Like I was on a rail to trail uh, in the, earlier in the fall, the B&H, but you could clearly see that, oh yeah, there's maintenance going on here. There's a little bit of mowing, there's uh, trees getting planted. It's more than just that initial conversion of take out the tracks lay down the aggregate and the gravel, it's, yeah, you got to maintain this. And sometimes that's a pretty long stretch of, of trail to be- In uh, a lot attended. of the areas, especially in your more rural and wood areas of Pennsylvania, it's mainly maintained by volunteer groups. I mean, without volunteers, I think our infrastructure would be a lot more at dire. The regular community aspect, well, I would say not regular community, and that's something I would like to help build, is trying to get the community more involved instead of only the special interests, if you will, you know, activity-based groups or um, community-specific based groups. It's more about getting everyone feeling like it's theirs. And that's that's something that's it's really needed in the future is helping, especially in urban areas, making it more green in the areas that need it most. There's a lot of research out there that talks about how trees and forests and natural areas make people happier and healthier. And so when we think about our urban zones and we think about you know, socioeconomics, 
within the cities, a lot of the, the money is around the parks. Well, sometimes the areas that don't have the money need the parks more. When we look at things like forest bathing and all these kind of it's like what I'm taking it's, I'm not taking a bath in the woods by the way you know it's getting out there and <laughs> deliberately spending time in nature and absorbing that experience and i lived in hong kong for eight years and i i was fortunate enough i lived on an outlying island that was water buffalo and rice fields and stuff like that so it was a little bit more relaxing but i mean being in the the heavy hitting hitting you know where batman's jumping off the buildings i mean every little bit of green meant something but you also found every rooftop had a garden on it because you still see the value of that living nature amongst all that non-living nature wow well as we always ask if you've listened to our podcast which i'm sure you you have and you know what is your favorite tree or group of trees? And maybe tell us a little story about it. I would say my favorite type of tree would be apple trees. And the only reason I really have their pain, they're messy. <laughs> I wouldn't want apple on my own property personally because of a lot of the inconvenience, but it does have fond memories of growing up. We had several apple trees in our backyard. I used to get stung by bees all the time. That's why I say you know what varieties you had? Uh, we had a yellow delicious and a Macintosh. And then our neighbor had these massive ones that I have no idea what kind they were. I just remember climbing up and getting them, but, um, and getting all the trees that fell down. We used to make cider, go into the old cider mills. And that was in the days before stainless steel and all the, the need for the gossip stuff and all those things. So they had the old, wooden press in the old, almost like canvas roll bag going. For some reason, that just really all pieces together for me. Oh, we did that up at Penn State with wool blankets, army blankets. Oh, really? Uh, that's, wow, that's even more absorbent. <laughs> yeah, it was very cool. I, I just thought, wow, this is, we had, they had an old cider mill out in the middle of the woods and we went there to make cider and it was the best experience I ever had. All right, so you guys have to explain what army blankets and canvas has to do with ciders. Yeah, there's like a big rolling conveyor belt that basically when you dump all the apples into this giant hopper, they roll through the press and it just keeps smashing the apples up and down. It, you know, it, it would take too long to step on them. It just keeps rolling that through. And then at the end, it just throws like all that smashed apple out at the end. So they used to feed it to the horses. That was the other thing I remember is the, kind of going and giving it to the animals and stuff. I imagine they get a lot of belly aches after a while though. Apples are great, apples have a great history. I wanna make sure listeners can find the website because uh, the time I spent on it really kind of solidifies, Brian, what the mission of the organization is. And I think uh, it'll give people a lot more clarity if, if uh, they can find the website and spend some time with it. And I'm assuming anyone that wants to can law, uh, create a login account and have access to the materials? Well, anyone can create a logon and that'll give them capability to see some of the things, but they, it is a gated site. So you do have to subscribe okay. to get to everything within the database and to get the extra benefits of 
uh, discounts and things like that for our trainings. But there is a teaser page, as I call it, and that's constantly rolling. So it shows the, the most recent five things that I've added to our database. And then I always refresh a new video on there as well. So there is some things there. And we also have social media aspects. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And then we have a monthly newsletter. We send two different newsletters out throughout the month. And all of that is free. So people can access that if they want to just get some teasers and see what we're into. We really encourage you to subscribe because that helps support us. Just prps.org. And then it's backslash maintenance institute so if you just go to prps.org you can find us that way through the through the links as well very cool thank you so much brian for enlightening yeah very great work that you're doing and uh as strong as your organization gets the people of pennsylvania are really going to benefit as well absolutely we applaud your work well thank you very much for the opportunity and i love the name a concierge of research. I love, <laughs> I love it. it. Like that coin, I coined that myself, so I will claim that. I, I kind of thought so. I kind of thought so. You seem like a literary person to me. <laughs> Thanks again. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank <laughs> you.